Amen. Please turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're reading verses 12 to 18. Ecclesiastes 1.12 I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you that we do not meet this morning in vain. We thank you that what we come to do this morning and every morning that we gather together, it is not meaningless. For you have called us to yourself, you have created us for yourself, and you have called us to, to worship you, and you have our best interest in mind before you seek to give us your grace and kindness and to impart your wisdom to us. And so we do pray and ask, Lord, that you would help us and that you would teach us and that you would shape our hearts so that we might leave here this morning wiser than when we first entered. And we do ask that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Thailand, 2018, a group of young children, along with their coach, entered a popular cave and were soon trapped in that cave as the cave became came flooded through a hard rainstorm, and it was not for 10 days that anyone was able to find them. Thankfully, they did find them, and of course, they found them very malnutrition, having not, having not had anything to eat during that time besides the food that they brought in with them. And so having found them, countries came together to try to figure out how do we rescue these children? How do we get them out of this cave that is flooded? And they came up with a lot of different plans. And essentially they decided, they came to the conclusion that none of these plans were going to work. Save one plan. A one plan that they actually admitted was the worst plan that they could ever come up with, but the only plan that had any measure of success. 
And so what they would do is go into the cave and swim out to them from point A to point B until they get to them. They're about a mile into this cave, trapped in there. And they would bring all this equipment with them. Their plan was that to put on the children all this equipment, the mask, give them oxygen tanks, and sedate them. So the plan was to essentially go into the waters and drag them out of the cave using a line that they have essentially put into the waters that they have sort of tracked as they were navigating through the cave, using this line to pull themselves from point A to point B until they finally reached the end of the cave and bring the children out. And it was determined that not just anybody could do this. Even the most military, the most trained military men could not do this. From the Navy SEALs in Thailand to the Navy SEALs in America could not do this because they didn't have the proper experience to make this, this task, this quest, this mission such a success. So what they needed was experienced cave divers. And these weren't individuals who sort of created a career for themselves in cave diving. These are actually people who, in their free time, were cave diving. These were people who had secular jobs, nine-to-five jobs, from IT guys to counselors to doctors. These are individuals who had, in their off time from the very moment when they were young and all throughout their lives for decades, had developed the knowledge, the understanding, the experience, the wisdom to know what they're doing. And they had the greatest success, their chance of success of getting all these children out. And so they were instrumental in getting them all out safely. In this section in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, the teacher, is going on this quest, a quest to search all of life, to try to comprehend all of life, to understand what is the meaning of life. And for that, someone needs to be well-equipped for the task in order to have a chance of success. They need to have all the available resources that is necessary. He has to have a great deal of wisdom to be able to comprehend all that there is in the world, to have any kind of success. And so this teacher embarks on this quest, and what we saw from last week, and continues to affirm in this section, is that it ultimately comes to nothing. But he begins this quest, first, it is a quest to search the world. He introduces himself, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and apply my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So this is his quest. Essentially, chapter 1 is an intro to the rest of the book. And this is a king over Jerusalem. This is, I'm persuaded, King Solomon, the wisest of all kings, that this is the one who is the greatest of all kings, none that's compared before or after him. He had all the available resources at his disposal, and he intends to search everything under heaven. Not necessarily every minute task, but to consider everything that is done under the sun, from the seeking of pleasure to entertainment to work, leisure, raising a family, marriage, singleness, all the things that you and I, that as human beings give ourselves to, these are the things that this teacher tried to understand and tried to grasp with his wisdom. So he's applying his wisdom to search the world. 
to try to understand what is man's purpose. And his conclusion, after he had considered everything, is that it is all meaningless. That it is like trying to take hold of the wind. That is elusive. It cannot be done. Searching and searching and searching and then come then to nothing. Right? We're sort of familiar with this kind of searching. We're always sort of searching for something. Whether it's the next headline, whether it's the next gossip, whether it's the next controversy, whether it's the next news feed or the thing that comes up on Twitter or Facebook feeds, whether it's the next show on Netflix, we're always searching for something. And this endless search really, I think, speaks to the intrinsic nature of man, that is, that man is always searching for something, something that will end all searches. Speaks to the lack of satisfaction and contentment that, there's, that cannot be found in the world, ultimately. The teacher applies wisdom to try to search it out, to try to search out the world and wisdom, in order to have wisdom, you need to know the difference between a lot of things, such as good and evil, namely, between right and wrong, between what is just and what is unjust. You cannot be wise at all without knowledge of such things. Because wisdom is very much a moral virtue. That's just an intellectual virtue. Wisdom requires us to know the difference between right and wrong and also to put what we know into action. So to understand and comprehend all of life, you also need to consider good and evil. The differences between the two, between also what is good and what is better. What happens when the teacher gives himself to search the world and comprehend all that there is to comprehend is that he comes up empty-handed. It's as if these divers went in to search for the missing children and went on this search over and over again and came up empty-handed. He concludes by saying, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Essentially, he is pointing to the fixed limitations that this quest was fixed from the very beginning. That from the very beginning, it was destined or predestined to end in utter failure. And so he says, it is an unhappy business. Some translations say that it is an evil business for man to be given to this task of searching for things in the world over and over and over again and ultimately coming up empty-handed. And ultimately it is, and the reason why it is that way, it is because it is set by God. God set it to be that way. Like the divers, the teacher is searching in the dark. The difference is that at least the divers had a flashlight to conduct their search, whereas the teacher doesn't, is sort of searching the world in complete darkness and has no flashlight. Essentially what he's saying about this search and the meaningless of this search. And the reason why it is vain and it is unfruitful and doesn't produce anything because it is using 
a wisdom that isn't connected to God. I mean, let's think for a moment about what man was created for. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, it tells us that there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The Bible teaches us that God created us and that God created us for himself. And when we look back to Genesis, the beginning, where it all started, Adam and Eve, the state of innocence, without sin, but then tempted by the serpent to eat of the fruits that is forbidden from them. In Genesis 3, 4, the serpent says to the woman that you will not surely die if you eat of this fruit. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll gain insight. You'll gain some illumination. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't that partly what wisdom is? Knowing the difference between good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This endless search is as old as Adam and Eve when they were first tempted in the garden, searching for something more, searching for something absent from God, searching for something that they thought that they could get apart from God, thinking that they themselves could be not just like God, but be God. And rather than becoming wise, instead they became foolish because they pursued a wisdom that has no connection to God. And in their sin, they rejected God. And because of their sin, because of the sin that is in man, God places man in this endless search for meaning, for purpose, for satisfaction, for contentment in the things of the world. C.S. Lewis once said that if we give ourselves to this constant search for meaning and purpose and satisfaction and contentment, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but if we give ourselves to this kind of search in the world and never find it, could it not mean that perhaps that this void in our hearts is intended to be satisfied by something that is transcendent, referring to God. The teachers applying this wisdom, searching the world for purpose. And yet Romans 8 tells us that creation itself was subjected to futility. The word for futility there is the same meaning as the word vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes. That even all of creation itself, the whole world itself, it sets on meaninglessness. Man apart from God is subjected to futility. That no matter how much wisdom the teacher applies in his search for purpose, it's never going to come to anything because it is a wisdom that is absent from God. Such wisdom cannot answer life's toughest questions. All the wisdom of the world cannot make straight what has been made crooked. Essentially, he's saying that you don't know what you don't know. And if you don't know, and if you know that you don't know a lot of things, how can you even count the number of things that you, cannot, that you cannot even know or don't know? 
Even wisdom has its limitations. The wisdom of the world has its limitations. The teacher's trying to get us to see he's the teacher, he's Kohelet, who's trying to assemble a gathering of students. He's He's embarked on this quest, and he's trying to impart to them wisdom. He's trying to impart to us wisdom, and he's teaching us that wisdom apart from God amounts to nothing. That that kind of wisdom is limited to the boundaries of the earth. And that's as far as it can go. And trying to solve life's toughest questions, it's like trying to solve an algebraic equation without knowing the fundamentals of math. Even for some of us, knowing all the fundamentals of math, we still can't figure out algebra. Me especially, I I, I put myself in that category. Wisdom in one sense, as I said, is the application of knowledge. Wisdom bound to the horizontal is living according to man's knowledge and man's interpretation of the world and man's interpretation of what is right and what is wrong. And the problem is that man has very different ways of interpreting what is right and what is wrong. We cannot even come into agreement about what is right and what is wrong. I mean, the Bible even tells us that there are that the world condemns the things that the Bible commends and should be, it says should be celebrated. And that the world celebrates the things that the Bible condemns. So he searches the world, and it comes up empty-handed. So then there's a second quest. There's a quest to know wisdom He again introduces himself. He says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly. And I perceive that this also is but a striving after win. Twice already he's introduced himself. Twice he's already telling his his students that if anyone who has any measure of success, I'm finding out the, the mysteries of life, it is me. And so here I am, I barked on this quest twice, and here I am presenting my conclusions to you. Like the divers that had spent a lifetime cave diving over decades and decades, and over time became experts and wise in their cave diving, this teacher is also qualified for the task before him. He was not only king, but he was also wise. God gave him this wisdom, and his wisdom that he applied to all areas of life, he applied it to his rule, he applied it to morality, he applied it to establishing righteousness and justice in his nation, prospering his nation, applied it to his own endeavors, applied it to establishing his own honor. But more than that, he tells us that he endeavors, he applies his heart to try to understand, in addition to wisdom, madness and folly. Wisdom in the world is often determined and defined by information, by knowledge, mastery, managerial experience, experience in anything using information, amassing uh, uh, as much knowledge as you can, and then making sort of an informed decision. 
And to some degree, wisdom is that, but it's certainly more than that. The, the teacher applies himself to this wisdom, but more than that, he applies himself to understand madness and folly. Madness carries a connotation of an arrogance towards God rather than a worship of God. Folly, according to the Bible, is the rejection of revealed truth. The Bible would describe the, the person who was folly or given to foolishness as the person who sins against himself by rejecting God. And so he gives himself to try to understand all of these things. And then he presents his conclusion, and that is that it is still meaningless. Which is quite shocking, because wisdom, right, wisdom is a good thing. Wisdom is something to be pursued. Right, if you were to ask anybody in the world, whether they're a Christian or not, hey, do you want to be wise, or wiser than you are right now? I think everybody would answer yes. I would want to be wiser. I want to be wiser. I want to learn more. Wisdom is a good thing. I think everybody generally would agree that wisdom is a good thing, but then he comes to try to understand madness and folly, and the shocking thing about his conclusion is that he puts it all, he lumps it all under the same category and says that ultimately it is foolish, that it is meaningless. That it is still sort of a swimming in the dark. And to some degree, he does give himself that kind of madness and folly. He doesn't become sort of this, this heinous criminal who does evil to his own nation. But in chapter 2, we see sort of his licentious living. He gives himself to the desires of his heart, the desires of his flesh, without restraint. So he knows from experience, but he also knows because he's got the wisest mind that the world has ever produced. And so it is a sad conclusion to come to the end and to say, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. For someone on this quest, or this pursuit of wisdom, comes to the conclusion that at the end of the day, no matter how much wisdom I have, it turns out I actually don't know a whole lot. Other philosophers have come to similar conclusions. They'll probably, I'll probably argue that they came to the same conclusions that King Solomon did, the wise teacher. Socrates, for, once, for example, says, the only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. Confucius once said, real knowledge is to know the extent of one's own ignorance. Buddha, a fool who recognizes his own ignorance, is thereby, in fact, a wise man. So they're saying that there's wisdom in knowing what you don't know, and knowing that you don't know a whole lot. But is that really what wisdom is all about? Is wisdom really just about knowing that you don't know a whole lot? That is a sad conclusion. These are men giving their lives to philosophizing and trying to understand wisdom. And their conclusion is that there's really not a whole, there's a whole lot that you will not know and can never know. And somehow that's wisdom. It's humble. It's humbling. But is it really wise? Does that really make a person wise? 
perhaps according to the standards of the world, perhaps a different conclusion is what the preacher had in mind. Maybe it is that, maybe it's something more. Maybe when one considers knowledge of good and evil, what is right and what is good and what is bad and what is terrible, in order to try to comprehend all of life, one also has to come face to face with the reality of wickedness and evil in the world. Not only with the evil that's in the world, but also with the evil and the sin that is within. I think there is a measure of wisdom to understand that, yes, there is wickedness in the world, but there is also wickedness in my own heart as well. And certainly to be wise, you have to understand and know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, and apply that knowledge in the right way. And we all, all human beings everywhere, tend to behave according to their best own interests. Taking all the information they have, taking all their knowledge, and people tend to behave according to their own best interests. It's not necessarily a bad thing. The problem is that best interests is left to the individual's interpretation. Right. We might disagree about what is in our best interests. I might be able to, I might tell you that it is actually not a good thing to behave in that way that is according I don't think that is in your best interest and you might tell me no it is it's actually in my best interests. We certainly can sin against the Lord and against one another seeking our own best interests. We can react terribly when things don't happen according to what we think is our best interest. Sometimes we do consider that it is in our best interest to do things that people might disagree with, and the world certainly thinks that it is in their best interest at time to commit evil and to commit sin. But the wisdom of the Bible is that it seeks to persuade us to convince us, to command us, and to encourage us to do those things that are in our best interest. And, but rather than leaving best interest up to our own interpretation, and instead it tells us what is in our best interest. And the Bible is very clear that it is always in our best interest to live in a right relationship with God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That it is in our best interest to trust in Christ. To trust in the one who has come down from heaven. To die on the cross for sinners. That those who repent and confess their sins to the Lord Jesus are given the grace of God, are given eternal life, and much more. Luke 14, 27 speaks to this best interest. The Bible has a lot to say. Luke 14, 27, whoever does not, Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him 
who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ through faith in Jesus Christ is counting the cost. And the Bible tells us that the wise person considers the cost. What are the consequences of not following Christ and what are the rewards of following Christ? It compares the two and comes to the conclusion either you will choose one and give life to meaninglessness and end an eternity in meaninglessness and outer darkness. The Bible says there's a gnashing of teeth or lay down your life and follow Jesus Christ and receive the rewards of eternal life and mercy and grace adoption as sons and daughters of God, and much more. The Bible leaves it to the individual person to make the decision. The Bible is clear that the wisest decision that a person can make is to count the cost and decide to follow Jesus Christ. the teacher's quest to apply wisdom to his search in the world and his quest to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly, both came to the sad conclusion that it is meaningless. But this then serves to highlight a third quest, and that is a quest to know wisdom rightly. And this quest to know wisdom rightly is our quest. The Bible encourages us to embark on this journey. We see this specifically in the book of Proverbs, but we also see in Ecclesiastes in its sort of in its own unique way. And that is a quest that is on the search for wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 2, which really speaks as a, as a father seeking to instruct and teach wisdom to his child. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with, it, with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. There is a wisdom that we are called to search for. Searching for it like if it's a prized possession, a hidden treasure. Searching for it as like if it was silver or gold. Something that it is precious. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 20. I won't read the passage in its entirety, but it really speaks to wisdom. and We are called to be on this journey to search wisdom. And it is a journey to search for something that actually wants to be found. Proverbs 1.20, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. Calling out for wisdom. Calling out to be searched for. To be asked for. Wisdom wants to be found, and this is the kind of quest that we 
are called to embark upon. A search for a right kind of wisdom. Not a worldly kind of wisdom, but a wisdom as ancient as the beginning of all creation. A wisdom that is eternal. A wisdom that is connected to reality, and that is a wisdom that is connected to God. And it is this wisdom that comes from God, and it is this wisdom that God gives to those who search for it by faith. And it is a wisdom that we ought to treasure. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We must also be acquainted with his sacred writings. And that is a reference to the Scriptures, to the truth of God, to the very words of God. And so we ought to treasure these sacred writings which are able to make us wise for salvation. The reason why you and I should really value and treasure wisdom, have a growing appetite for wisdom, seek it, search for it, ask for it, try as hard as we can to find it, is because wisdom literally, and when I say literally, I actually mean literally. A lot of people say literally and only mean it figuratively. But when I say literally, I mean literally. Wisdom will save your life. And that is why we seek after it. This wisdom that comes from God, this wisdom that is connected to God, this wisdom that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ, this wisdom that ought to be applied in all areas of our life. If we seek it, we will find it, and it will save our lives. And so we must treasure it. We have to prize it. We have to consider it as the most valuable possession that we have. Now, if you remember when we went through the book of Philippians, Philippians does an excellent job of presenting to the Christian the prize of Jesus Christ, that Christ is the most valuable treasure that we possess. So a natural question you might ask is, well, Christ should be our greatest treasure, but wisdom should also be our greatest treasure. So how do you bring both of those together? One has to be above the other, but the Bible actually has something to say about that. 1 Corinthians 1.24 tells us those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 30 of that same chapter, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So prizing Christ and prizing wisdom are not these two mutually exclusive things, but they're actually one and the same. If you treasure Christ, you treasure wisdom. If you prize wisdom, you prize Jesus Christ. If you have Christ, 
you have wisdom. And if you have wisdom according to the scriptures, biblical wisdom, wisdom connected to God, then you also have Christ. You cannot have the kind of wisdom that God offers apart from Christ. Jesus Christ is our wisdom. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, that is in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So not only is it wise to have Christ as your greatest possession through faith in Him, but in addition to that, in Jesus Christ, there are just even more hidden treasures of wisdom that are waiting to be found by those who embark on this quest to search for more and more wisdom. Wisdom is one of those things the Bible is telling us that you, never, that you can never have enough of, that you can never ask God enough of. And so looking for this wisdom, one way of looking for this wisdom, I mean, first you have to have it. You have it accessible to you through faith in Jesus Christ. But the way that we go about on this journey to seek more wisdom is by asking. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That's not a suggestion. That's a promise in his word. And anyone who asks, if any of you ask for wisdom, God gives it generously. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks about the churches who pooled their resources together to provide for those in need. And he says that these churches that gave were in, in, in sort of an, an extreme affliction and had extreme poverty. They had every reason not to give. It would be justifiable if they did not give anything at all to those in need, but instead they pooled their resources together and they gave generously to those in need. Even though nobody would have condemned them if they had not. Paul wasn't even expecting them to, and yet they gave generously of all that they had, even though they were not in a place to do so. And that this was generous. Right? In the same way, God gives generously to those who ask for wisdom, meaning he does not give conservatively, but he gives very liberally. And because God is never in poverty, but is always rich, he gives it lavishly to those who ask. So the question is, right, will you ask for it? Do you desire more wisdom? Do you treasure wisdom? Do you value it? Wisdom is necessary. If you want to get far in the Christian life, you can't do so without wisdom. Because wisdom is applied, must be applied to every single area of your life, from work to how to deal with terrible bosses to relationships with family and friends, how you raise your children, how you conduct yourself in marriage, how do you handle marriage, how do you handle your singleness. 
Wisdom is applied to every area of your life, and you're not going to get very far as a Christian without wisdom. You're certainly not going to grow in maturity and stature without wisdom. And so wisdom is this thing that we are always looking for. The Bible does not present us with information, but with truth to be understood, to be believed, and to be embraced, and to be applied. And that is wisdom. Towards the end of his life, Jesus, in his last moment with his disciples, gave him his last words, his last teachings. He prayed with them. And in that prayer, and in that in that time that they spent together, Jesus shows his great concern and love and affection, not only for his disciples, but for his church. And upon, when he's just moments from his departure, when he's going to the cross and die, and then shortly thereafter rise from the, get, from the grave and then ascend to the right hand of God, he says he, he leaves his church with two things. He leaves the church with a comforter, that is the Holy Spirit, to comfort them, to help them as they continue to remain in the world, which also is also God's way of abiding with his church and his people. And the second thing that Jesus leaves with his church is his word. Jesus says, I have given them your word. And Jesus prays, sanctify God, to praise to God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus has left us with the sacred writings, the scriptures which are to make us wise for salvation. The wisdom contained in the word of God will literally save our lives. It's what will keep us to the very end till we meet Jesus Christ face to face. If we desire to grow in more wisdom, not in the wisdom of the world that King Solomon came to the conclusion is meaningless, but if we desire to grow in the wisdom of God, then we ask God, who is the foundation and the dispenser of wisdom, but we also search the sacred writings, which is the divinely inspired word of God. These writings, this truth is given to us so that may be, we may become wise unto salvation. The more that we seek after it, the more that we learn from it, the more that we study it, and the more that we apply it, the more that we will grow in wisdom. This quest to know wisdom rightly is a quest that we'll never finish in this life. And yet we don't become sorrowful because in our pursuit of wisdom, this wisdom that comes from God, we find ourselves at the same time growing in wisdom. And we also find ourselves growing in wisdom when we walk in wisdom, and that is walking in the fear of the Lord. The pursuit of wisdom is the pursuit, essentially the pursuit of Christ. And while we may not finish this quest in this life, we will certainly finish it in the next life when we obtain the prize that we have long sought after and that is the prize of Christ himself. Amen. Let's pray. 
Jesus, your word has reminded us this morning that you are the wisdom of God. Lord, and your word teaches us that it is wise for us to continue to pursue wisdom. Lord, would you please increase our appetite for wisdom? Give us a growing hunger for wisdom so that we may know how to live our lives in this world and so that we may continue to live our lives rightly before you and we may continue to walk in the fear of the Lord that we may continue to walk as your beloved children who desire to please their heavenly Father. Lord, your word says, whoever lacks wisdom, let him as God who gives generously. And so we come before you this morning, and God, we just ask that you would please give us more wisdom. Please, Increase our wisdom, Lord. Give it to us generously. Give it to us lavishly, Lord. We desire to know more of Christ. We desire for more of Christ. So would you help us to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and thereby also growing in wisdom for your glory and for our delight and joy as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.